Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Entrenched racism is all around us. This is not a new phenomenon, nor the first time racism has been headline news. And yet, we have a seemingly incredible ability to forget the atrocities committed daily, as long as it isn't at the top of the news cycle. This needs to stop. We can't continue being intermittently outraged before falling back into business as usual. Our status quo is broken. You may think there isn't much you can do as an individual to enact change, but there is. Beyond joining organisations campaigning for change, becoming more politically active and engaged, making informed voting decisions and educating your children, there is something far simpler we all need to do. Reflect. It is important that we recognise our white privilege and reflect on where we have inadvertently contributed to systematic racism. It isn't comfortable to confront your flaws, but if we are ever to change society, then we need to be honest about our past and present. The future can be better. We can change. As such, we wanted to reflect on our biases when it comes to our media consumption and content creation. We often get things wrong, but we are trying, in our way, to make a difference. This is a discussion, not a blame game. We hope to share some of the instances where we feel we have unintentionally contributed to, or simply accepted, a reinforced and harmful power structure to help others reflect on their own entrenched biases. So... When you actively reflected on your reading habits, what did you girls notice about the representation of authors of colour? Well, when I went through my bookshelves, I actually had more books by people of colour than I thought I had, but it was still woefully below all the others. Um, And I was thinking actually about how my reading habits have changed since being on this podcast. So if you'd asked me maybe six months to a year before I started Breaking the Glass Slipper, my bookshelf would have been full of white male dudes writing fantasy and a load of Regency romance. (laughs) And, you know, there's still a decent amount of that on there. But there's now more women, there's more people of colour. But I kind of felt when I looked at it that I had to seek it out an awful lot. And I appreciate that part of seeking it out is being part of a podcast where people are actively saying, please let me give you my book. So it's quite interesting that... I feel like it's out there, but I don't know where it is. And I have to do something like this to actually get some recommendations of good female writers, of good people of colour, some good writers with disabilities, because you really need to go looking for it. It's not just there. And I was thinking, well, how else would I improve it? Maybe my Amazon recommends would be good. And then I thought, well, actually, no, they'll just recommend me the most popular ones of the same genre I'm reading in. So if I read a good um, horror by someone of colour, and then they'll just recommend me the top Stephen King or something like that. So I really feel like I've got a good amount on my shelves, but I feel like I want more. 
but more importantly, I just don't know where to get it or how to find it beyond sort of word of mouth and approaching people who have read the same persons of colour who authors as I have and saying, you know, what else do you like? Yeah, in the same same vein as Charlotte, um, except that when I looked at my shelves, I saw white, white, white. And I'm going to be completely honest, it was 90% white, possibly higher. Um, and it's really shocking. And what's, what's more kind of um, troubling is that we, like, on this podcast, the whole point of this podcast is to like get people to look at their shelves and get people to look at the amount of like, you know, um, male authored books that they have. And very often it's like 90%. Why is it 90%? Like, and I just, I did exactly the same thing that we tell our readers and our listeners to do. And I was confronted with the same really quite horrible truth that it's massively disproportionate. And yeah, I mean, they, oh, I do have I do have books um, by people of color on there. It's just the ones that I do have tend to be in my to be read pile, and it's like, well, it's a difficult. It's very difficult to say like why that is, um, and whether we are simply drawn to, um, you know, as I mean, Charlotte was picking up on this about books that are recommended to us, and how do we find new books? I um, mean, and a lot of my reading is coming. It is different now. It is very much to do with this podcast and it's to do with people sending me books to blurb and things. So some of it is coming from publishers simply not thrusting those books under my nose. And I have a lot less time for reading than I used to. So you could say that, you know, my time has become more precious so I can be more picky. But the distill doesn't really excuse the fact that most of the books I'm still reading are mostly female authored, but all white um, and it's just extremely noticeable. And I don't think I noticed until, you know, we decided to do this episode and I sat down and I had a look at my shelves and that's what I saw in all honesty. Yeah, I am very similar. I, I do definitely have some books by authors of colour, but it's just depressing when I look back and see, well, actually, you know, on every one of my shelves, there's maybe one book to all the other white authors and I'm kind of ashamed of myself that I I didn't pick up on that and that I haven't made an effort to seek out authors who have different experiences and different stories to tell and maybe I would find that far more interesting than reading things that are coming from the same contextual background that that I have and it yeah, I, I just was really, really disappointed in myself when I sat down and actually looked at what I'd been reading. What you said was really interesting about contextual background, because I think that plays an enormous part in what we're drawn to, what media we're drawn to, like whether that's films or, or, or books or games even. I think there's consciousness there, but I also think there's a massive unconscious kind of contextual cultural backdrop that we are automatically drawn towards books that we recognize and um, are familiar with that they're maybe telling stories that we've read before somehow we want a kind of comfort layer there that we think we're going to understand the the stories that these characters are experiencing and um Perhaps we don't want to be challenged in our reading. Perhaps that, you know, maybe if you say this, you know, we're voicing this on a, on a conscious level, you know, books are actually, you know, okay, I think they serve two functions. I think there are books out there that, you know, they 
we should be challenged and we, we should be exposed to different cultural views, racial views, sexual views um, that differ from our own. But I, you know, there is also the argument that books are escapist and generally the books that, you know, that I think that most people read are generally more escapist than books that challenge them. And if you want an escapist book, you're more likely to be drawn to a book that is some on some level comforting. And maybe that comfort is can be found in a familiar, like contextual environment. Actually, you were kind of saying that it's it's something that I recognize and therefore that's what I've chosen. And maybe this isn't, I don't think any of this is necessarily conscious. I just think it's kind of something that we recognize. Um, we're, we're drawn to life stories that um, we feel familiar with and maybe we don't want to be challenged by them. It's interesting what you're saying about the, the comforting thing, because I was re- remembering back on my education. So obviously I grew up in Australia and uh, for part of the time I um, lived in the US where I was living in Texas. So obviously quite uh, a place very entrenched with racism. And I don't remember having to read a single book by a person of colour on any of my school curriculums. And that is horrendous. The fact that as a child, as you know, when you are developing your taste when you are still very, very much exploring and learning about the world that I wasn't exposed to more of that. And I kind of want to give a shout out to a local bookstore in Perth in Western Australia, Stefan's Books, because I went in there and was chatting to Stefan for ages, who's a really great guy. Um, And he, I asked him for some recommendations of Australian genre authors because I don't actually read much from Australia either. And one of the first books he recommended me was Terra Nullius by Claire G. Coleman. And she's an Aboriginal author. And the book is an incredible metaphorical tale about alien invasions and you know, using that to contrast the language and the behaviour with the white colonists coming to Australia. It's really, really powerful. And when I, I loved the book, but it was also that realisation that I was in my 30s before I ever read a book by an Aboriginal. And that made me really ashamed of myself because, you know, Aborigines were in my country before the white people came and and kind of took their land and brought disease and all sorts to them and treated them terribly. And I hadn't even bothered to read a book by an Aboriginal author. And that was really quite a powerful moment for me when I realized that I was, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to express how ashamed that made me feel. So I really recommend Claire's book. Um, and just getting out there and reading works by indigenous cultures. Obviously, that's not quite the same in England, but if you're in Australia or the US, I think that's that's really important to understand the views from people who but basically who were there before you. <laughs> and I I do think that's really, really important. And um yeah, I I really think I need to explore more works by 
Aboriginal authors as well as, as generally people of colour. So is anyone reading anything really good that they can recommend at the moment? I have a list. And I must admit, when I looked through my reading record of all the books that I'd read, I found that although I hadn't read many stories by people of colour, when I listed them, they were some of my top favourites. Um, so Victor Laval did The Changeling, um, which I believe won the BFS award for best something, best horror novel, I think it was. Um, and I must admit, I wasn't massively keen of it. I thought it was really interesting, but it didn't quite grab me. But The Ballad of Black Tom, oh yes, really loved that. Read a sample of it, went out and bought it. Fantastic. Um, Priya Sharma uh, has written a novella called Orm Shadow, which has just been nominated for a Shirley Jackson Award. And I am crossing my fingers that she gets it because not only is Priya one of the loveliest people you will ever meet, the book is amazing. And it's deals with sort of a very rural community. Um, I can't remember whether it's set in England or it's it's certainly a European community. So it's one I was quite familiar with and it's got dragons in it. And it's just, oh, I just loved it. That was amazing. Cassandra Craw did Hams on Bone, which is a novella from Tor.com, which I read just randomly because Lee Harris gave it to me and he went, oh, this is really good. You should read this. So I did. And do you know, I despise Lovecraft. I can't stand Lovecraft and his fiction. But my goodness, was this book brilliant. And it had a wonderful child character in it. The plot went where I didn't think it was going to go. It just blew me away. And it's such a short book. It takes up no time at all to read. And I raced through it. And given how much I despise Lovecraft and how much I love this book, I think that just speaks masses for her. And I've also read some of her Rupert Wong books, which are fun and cannibalistic and just gory and glorious. Um Miki Ongo, I read His Lost Gods, which was a, a fantasy series. And it was so refreshing because I love traditional epic fantasy, you know, sort of anything based on Tolkien. There, I think there's so much out there that you can do. But Mika took us to a whole new world, new experiences, new characters, and it was just great. I really enjoyed that book. Um, Jeanette Ng, obviously, who's been on this podcast, loved Under the Pendulum Sun, gothic Victorian, just Oh, so lyrical. It was amazing. And one that I've dug out um, now that I'm getting my reading mojo back. Um, apologies to the author if I do not pronounce their name properly. Rin Chupeko, I think it is, um, who wrote the amazing The Girl from the Well, which is supposed to be young adult, I think, but is flipping terrifying for young adults. Um, but it was an amazing story. It's a bit like um, Japanese horror film, The Grudge. It's kind of that that idea but there was just wonderful things through it like the protagonists ghostly protagonists counting and you not understanding why and then building it all into folklore and having some really engaging characters and the ghost being kind of vicious and malicious but also at the same time having morals and oh it was just brilliant and I've just bought the sequel to that so I'm looking forward to rereading the first one and then reading the second one as a sequel um, yeah, so um, in sci-fi, there's um, Temio's book, uh, Do You Dream of Terror 2, is a really fantastic kind of contemplative book about teenagers selected to travel to a kind of new earth, um, but the voyage takes over 20 years. Um, actually, this is my current read. Um, it's a book called Wolf Light um, by uh, Yaba Beidou, I hope I pronounced that right, Um who is a British Ghanaian filmmaker as well as a writer. And it's a beautiful YA book about three 
girls uh, in different parts of the world um, who kind of have sister magic. So it's about sisterhood and it's about basically being in touch with the world. I love Eliza Chan's stories. She's a really fantastic short story writer. In fact, her Joss Papers for Porcelain Ghosts, that's actually going to be reprinted um, in the Best of British Fantasy 2019. It's a really fantastic anthology. Um, but she's she's a great short story writer. And I don't actually read that many short stories. And um, so it was good to discover her. Um, I also feel like I kind of have to talk about, and I'm so sorry about this pronunciation, but the author of The Untamed, um, Modal Sushi, so she, her name is, um, at least her pseudonym, is um, Mo Chiang Tong Tiu. I'm so sorry about that. But um, she's really great. And I could only read her books in fan translations. This is not an official um, official translation available. Um, but like, God, the un- if you if you watch The Untamed, uh, it is the most amazing. It's not just like an example of a Dan May novel. It's like, it's brilliant. It's got the most amazing history. Okay, it's very hard to describe without you just going and seeing it. You can get really obsessed with it. But she also um, did a really another, a really other brilliant book called um, Heaven Official's Blessing, which is also going to be adapted into an anime airing this year so I'm really looking forward to seeing that adapted um but yeah she's just a really wonderful author which I'm kind of sad that I can't read an official translation the fans have done an amazing job um on it but it's just so nice to be able to read stories from that are like massive sweeping epic fantasy stories that are not in the traditional like European medieval setting with knights and dragons and stuff. And we just seem to have endless supplies of these books. So yeah, that's, that's been an amazing, um, she was an amazing discovery. Oh, also my sister, I was talking to my sister about this and she says that she would also really, really like to recommend Sarah Collins, um, Confessions of Franny Langton, which is even not a, um, speculative fiction book, but it did win the Costa award for first novel. Uh, and she said, it's just really, really good. So definitely check that one out as well. And that is top of my reading list already. It's literally sitting upstairs on the top of my, my pile of actual physical copies. And yeah, that I've heard good things about that as well. So I know I am a little bit of a broken record when it comes to this author, but I think that Octavia Butler was incredible. When I first picked up Kindred, it was one of those moments I just, I remember it really clearly because I happened to be in Paris visiting my aunt and I, I always go and wander through Shakespeare and Co. Just, you know, it's, it's, I love, you know, I love bookstores. I love books. I think that's pretty obvious. So I always go there and just wander through. And I happened to spot Kindred in the sci-fi section, which is pretty small. And they had a little, you know, one of those little recommended cards beneath it. And I just remember thinking, oh, this sounds fantastic. And so I picked it up there and then just, you know, obviously bought it. And when I got back to my aunt's flat, I immediately started reading it. And I just could not put it down. And I am quite a slow reader. And I read that in two days. I loved it so much. And I, you will hear me recommend it to pretty much everyone that I I meet and since I've read some of her short stories, I've read the parables duology. And even when I think, you know, some of them, are, the parables had some flaws, but they're so interesting. And the, the stuff that she talks about just blows my mind. So if, if people haven't read Octavia Butler, please, please do yourselves a favor and read her. And Kindred will always be on my 
top, top books of all time. It's incredible. But also, I would like to give shout-outs to Tade Thompson. Um, his sci-fi writing is just so interesting and fun, and he's creeped me out on occasion, like, so badly. And this is from someone I tend to read right before I go to bed. So I was not best pleased with him, and I told him so on Twitter. <laughs> Um, not genre fiction, but I did really enjoy Roxane Gay, um, her Bad Feminist collection, and I generally just like her essays. They're they're really um, important and just touch on some really difficult issues which really, really need that kind of discussion happening around them. I love Monstrous by Marjorie Liu. It's a fantastic graphic novel series. Um, definitely read that. As I already mentioned, Claire Coleman, definitely go read hers. I believe she's got a new book out this year. N.K. Jemison is amazing. I I love her books. Um, Nydia Corafor, uh, Samuel Delaney. There are some amazing authors, but I am, yeah, a broken record and I will just keep shoving Octavia Butler at you. <laughs> Well, I haven't actually read any Octavia Butler, so I am the perfect person to shove her at. <laughs> okay, Lucy, that's it. I am ordering you a copy of Kindred Thank because you. you need to read it. <laughs> Always up for free books, I have to say. I haven't read Octavia either. I guess, yep, yep. All right, this is happening. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Tade Thompson because I suddenly thought of another way in which I tend to get recommendations for books, which is... <laughs> I go to conventions and I meet people and I like them and I buy their books, which is how I ended up reading Priya's stuff um, and also Mika because I met them at conventions and they were just such lovely people. And I went, wow, well, that's really interesting. I'd like to hear what you have to say as well, you know, in books. Um, and Tade and by Stuart Hotson are also on my list of people to read uh, simply because I met them at conventions. I really like them and their books have gone on my wish list. So that's another way that I tend to... Um, diversify my my reading list is by meeting nice people and deciding that I'm going to read them. Yeah, I mean that's quite interesting. So Stuart, uh he handed me a copy of his book at uh Worldcon last year. And it made me really quite sad because I get so you know running this podcast, we get quite a few review copies of books and I I had kind of thought back to what books I'd been given and very few of them are by people of color. And I, you know, was chatting to some of the people who are working at Stu's publisher and I didn't get that book from them. I got it from the author who came to me and said, I've written this book. It has a fabulous, strong female character. I'd, I'd love for you to read it and, and, you know, talk about it. And uh, it's Tangle's Game, by the way, if you would like to read Stu's book. And it just, it made me really sad just, just thinking about how I don't think that the authors of colour, while they're all, there are much fewer of them being published by a lot of the big publishers, but they also then don't seem to get as much marketing push behind them. And that mm -hmm. in itself made me really sad because I just, you know, look, looking at my TBR pile, a lot of it is books from publishers and I think there's like one book in there that is from a person of colour. Oh, can I just dive in on the whole being handed books at conventions? 
Of course, how could I forget the marvellous Premi Mohammed, who we interviewed a, a couple of episodes back and her book Beneath the Rising, which, you know, deals with a, the, all the different aspects of being a woman, being um, of a person of colour within society now. And I got that because uh, David Thomas Moore, who works for Rebellion, passed me at the convention and went, oh, got a book for you. And I was like, okay. He said, oh, you love it. You really love it. And I read it and I went, oh, Lovecraft. I'm like, yeah, thanks. That's great. Put it in my bag. And then... We obviously, you know, got approached to having her on the the show, and I read it, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, this is amazing!" So I think the advice to this is that if anyone passes you at a book at convention and says you're going to love it, you really need to take notes. So thank you, David, for that book. I am so glad that you gave it to me, and please, publishers and authors, please give me more books that you think I will like at conventions. This is a good thing. So should we ask the elephant in the room question, which is kind of, do you expect books written by people of colour to address race and racial issues and if we do why and if not like you know why why do we expect that to be the case um when it's when it doesn't come to white white authors like why do white authors not have to discuss racial issues I mean what I was thinking about my answer to this question is that I don't expect them to discuss race or racial issues. But racism and race, they do seem to feature disproportionately in books by authors of colour. Um, and I don't know whether that's due to the publishing industry's expectation um, of black authors to tell black stories, or whether it's because, you know, like issues arising from racial differences impact their daily lives, like in a way that it doesn't for white people um, and white authors. I don't feel like this is a question and I'm you know, that question particularly, I'm not very qualified to answer. Um, but I do wonder when the kind of books that we see pushed at us by big money publishers, when they, when they are books about race or about, you, you just wonder whether it's kind of like, it, this, this, is, this is white publishing talking. This is white publishing saying, well, we know that Black Lives Matter is headline news so these are the books we think that you want to read to educate yourselves um and a lot of those books are going to be about questions of race and they are going to be and i feel like it's it's difficult isn't it because i wouldn't want to be told um and i wouldn't want to be judged um you know as a as a woman um as a white person like i don't want to be you know people to think oh well she's it's a bit like what we say about um female writers expecting to produce romance like i don't want people to assume that because i'm a certain person in life i am expected to produce this type of book i think that's awful um and i i think it's a really a really complex question um and i think the publishing industry is got is very tied up in it because of course we are dependent on mostly big publishers to get these sorts of stories to put these stories into our hands um and of course those stories have to go through several gatekeepers to come to reach us when i was thinking about the answer to this question uh my mind brought up the name jane austen because Jane Austen wrote pretty much the same book several times over in different variations. She never bothered particularly with the lower classes. She dealt only with the world that she knew. And she is the epitome of the writing advice of write what you know. And I think that is one good piece of advice with writing. But I also think it falls down a little bit when you come to something like fantasy, whereas you can't really apply write what you know when you're writing about dragons, for example. Um, or necessarily about magic and, and evildoers who are chosen ones and things like that. 
So I wouldn't expect a person of colour's book to have race and racial issues in it. However, I do also think that it is a case of write what you know. And if that author has experience of it, feels very strongly about it, they're going to give a much better rendition of that and be able to make you feel more empathy and understand the issues better than a white person writing it based on maybe research they've done, people they've talked to. And I mean, my speciality is horror and horror is very, very personal. And I find that my best horror writing is stuff that scares me. And I must admit, a lot of my books and short stories recently have been around mothers losing children or turning on their children or killing them because now as a mother, that petrifies me. And I think that there is an element that oppression, the world over, has similar elements, whether you were oppressed because you're a person with a disability, because of your sexuality, because of your gender, because of your race. I think we all suffer to a certain extent. And I think it is possible to take your own experience of oppression and transmute it into similar feelings for race, sexuality, whatever. I think that that is possible. But I also think that people who have experienced that directly are going to be better placed to write about it and really evoke the feelings. So I don't expect books to have race in it. I mean, look at Priya Sharma's one that I talked about. Excellent book, no real issues about race. There's lots of prejudice and oppression in it, but nothing specifically race-related. Compare that with Premium Mohammed's, which was excellent and about cosmic horror and had very strong oppression of women and race in it, both of which, you know, she she possibly has experience of or direct experience of and therefore made a brilliant read and was just spot on and was both funny and poignant and sharp and biting in so many ways. So I think we could do with more books from people of colour dealing with racial aspects so that people can really get a feeling of what it's like to be in that mindset. But I also think there are some fabulous stories out there from people of colour that don't require any mention of race whatsoever and they are equally valid and are still just good stories and should be pushed as much as those from white authors. I think the reason I wanted to ask this question was similar to what we all know happens to women where when you're being interviewed or if you're going to a convention and on a panel you know what to do with the the female authors, put them on a panel about female writers or the female experience or something like that. And you you kind of see the same thing, whether it's uh, an author of colour, um, an actor, whatever it is, they're always asked about race. And on the one hand, I think that can be important because if we're wanting to raise awareness and we want to educate people, then they need to hear those stories. And we we certainly want to make sure that those stories are out there. But at the same time, I feel like it's become an expectation that if you are an author of colour and that you don't address race in your work, there's somehow they're kind of letting the side down. And and similarly, I think we've had this conversation before about female writers, you know, when so many books have that kind of white male protagonist, does that mean as a female that I shouldn't write a book with a male protagonist? Like I, what if I want to write a book mm, with a male protagonist? Like the Am I somehow feminist obligation? 
yeah, am I letting the side down? And I, I think there's definitely become, it's unfortunate now that there seems to be a lot of pressure where there is that expectation that if you are an author of colour, that you will kind of, you will address the race thing because that's kind of your box. And they have been put into that box and very rarely does it seem like they're allowed to step outside of that. And when I have seen them completely step outside of it, it's more things like, you know, Tade Thompson's uh, Rosewater series. It's set, you know, in Africa and the racism isn't, racism isn't really a part of the story because everyone in the story almost is, is black. And in that sense, he gets, he doesn't have to address that. But I feel like that kind of is the, the exception where these stories, even Nnedi Okorafor writes lots of books set in Africa. And those books don't necessarily seem to deal with race in, in a way that other books by people of colour, I feel, where they're set in a world, either in the world that we know or a secondary world, tend to be expected to, which I think is is interesting in and of itself. You know, if it is the publishing, the lines, whoever it is that's decided that this is what's okay and what isn't okay or what what readers will like. And I just think it's it's really disappointing that we haven't got more books by people of colour in terms of just whatever they want to write, that there is there doesn't have to be an expectation that they address race and they're not letting the sigh down or or somehow contributing to oppression by not particularly addressing that issue because it's perfectly legitimate that they might want to write a an escapist fantasy that's just a whole load of fun and that's fine there doesn't need to be um a big kind of issue at the heart of every book and i do feel that unfortunately there kind of is an expectation from readers from the publishing industry and I would like to see that change. It shouldn't, we shouldn't always have to, you know, speak to authors of color about being an author of color, for instance. And yeah, and I know we do it as well. Um, you know, even on this podcast, you know, I, we've had writers on talking about African literature and Afrofuturism and talking about these things. And, and I think that's really important that we do talk about it, but we also need to make sure that we're, we're also just talking to them about tropes generally and they don't need to only talk about race they can talk about whatever they want and their opinions are just as valid and they don't have to be pigeonholed in the way that they have been for so long now that we've spent a decent amount of time talking about books and authors and things like that I wondered if we could move it on a little bit to on-screen representation because obviously that is another form of storytelling and it is one that has perhaps a much wider reaching effect than books because pretty much everybody goes to the cinema or watches TV. And I must admit, I have had somewhat of a renaissance in my viewing since the pandemic has appeared and I haven't been able to go outside very much. And I have found some fantastic stories and films and series out there. But before I get into that, I wondered what you guys have been watching and how that reflects whether there is more representation of people of colour within the media that you watch than perhaps in the books that you read? I'm going to start this by referencing a film that has nothing to do with genre, 
but I was, you know, flicking through my Amazon Prime, like, what should I watch? And I saw Showgirls on there. And it's one of these films that people always talk about and reference, and I have never seen. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to watch Showgirls. So I did. And it is terrible. Everything you've heard about it is absolutely true. But when I was watching it, I thought, oh, there's so many black characters in this. This is great. How come I don't see this many in other things? And then I actually paused for a second and went, wait a minute. There are two black characters, but they are named characters. And, you know, there's one's the best friend of the main character and one is a love interest. And I was kind of shocked at myself that watching a film where it had two black characters, I thought it was good representation. And I was actually really fucking cross with myself. I could not believe that I had actually thought that, even for a second. But what horrified me was also that thinking about what I've been watching and throughout the course of my life, that did feel like a lot of representation because there isn't much in any of the things that I watched. And I was trying to go back and and think of some of my favorite films and shows and so many of them are all white, all white. And if they're not, there's like one black character. Kendra. Well, also Mr. Mr. Trick was the other one I thought of, but yeah, like Buffy is so white. Um, And she was killed off. Yeah, killed off. Yeah. So was Mr. Trick. Um, Yeah. And that, that was really horrifying to me. And I was also thinking about even Star Trek. Sorry, Lucy. Um, But when you look at Star Trek, original series is actually far more representative than Next Generation. Which in itself, you know, what? Did we go backwards? One of them was in the 60s and the other, you know, like, why? Yeah, I just started getting really depressed and angry. And the only one that I I could really think about that I thought was actually okay was um, Red Dwarf. (laughs) Weirdly. Oh Um, my goodness, I hadn't thought of it like that, but yes. What's actually really interesting about Red Dwarf is that Craig Charles ended up asking to um, audition for Lister because he'd been sent the script as a sensitivity reader to check because they were worried that maybe the the character of the cat would come across as racist. So they sent it to some um, black authors and comedians and writers and so on and, and asked them to be sensitivity readers. Craig Charles was one of them and said, I love this, please can I audition? So that's interesting in itself. But really, I mean, you know, maximum they had like four four characters and two of them were black. So it was that's actually, actually really amazing well ratio. <laughs> but isn't that sad that like, yes, but it was the only one I could really think of, of, of things that I love and have watched a lot of. And, mm. and, and even, I don't know, things that I had thought previously were like good representation are actually not. And it was really uncomfortable, I think, to to look back at something that I had thought of as, oh, you know, this is, you know, very diverse and it's got lots of representation. But when I actually 
stopped and looked at it in kind of the, the harsh light of day, I saw that there was only one or maybe two. And it's just because everything else was so white that I just felt like one or two was, oh, well, that's really diverse. And yeah, I, I guess ultimately the thing is I, because I've been reflecting on this, given the state of the world, I'm just constantly disappointed in myself and in the media that I consume both on the page and on the screen. So how does Black Panther stand up against, um, you know, in the, the array of superhero films? I didn't see it. Really? But you've seen all the superhero films. I haven't actually. I got, uh, I got superhero burnout um, a few years back. And I've not seen many of the new ones. But that is, the one thing that is interesting is when you get films or TV shows that are specifically marketed to an audience of colour or you have, you know, Crazy Rich Asians or Black Panther. They have those, um, they did the, the sort of the black remake of Death at a Funeral all those kinds of things. But those those films and those TV shows, they're always marketed to that particular audience. And that in itself pisses me off because why wouldn't I want to watch those films? You know, I went and saw Crazy Rich Asians. I, you know, I've, <laughs> I don't understand why it seems to be like, oh, if, if it's an all black cast or whatever, then you, you can't enjoy it or it's not for you. It's like, okay, I, I love the golden girls and I've been rewatching it currently because it's on weekdays at the moment. And I love that show. It's incredibly white and it's not diverse in color at all. But what was brilliant about it is, is it's all female main cast. So there's recurring male characters, but the, the main characters are all women and I don't think that that's necessarily a female show. It's very funny, and I think that both genders would, would really enjoy it. But if they were all black women, it would definitely be marketed to only black audiences. And that, mm. yeah, it pisses me off. <laughs> so then, horror. <laughs> um, looking back at the history of horror, there is a spectacular trend for any person of colour to die off as quickly as possible. And also, if you have some kind of issue with sexuality or if you are slightly promiscuous, I mean, horror is basically a moral message dressed up with added aliens, added monsters, stuff like that. So unfortunately, the history of horror with people of colour has been quite appalling and it got to the point where I was watching Deep Blue Sea, which is a terrible film about sharks coming alive, not coming alive, sorry, sharks getting very intelligent and eating everybody. And there is one person of colour in it. And I was kind of waiting for him to meet a sticky end because that's kind of what you expect in films. And I mean, I was thinking about Alien, where Parker is not exempt and Alien 3, where Dylan, um, played by the amazing Charles S. Dutton, is also another one to die. Although I suppose in Aliens you could argue that pretty much everybody dies. 
But thinking about Ghostbusters, the black character there in both the original version and the remake was just so stereotyped. And although they survived, they were kind of sidelined. I think someone made a point about the most recent Ghostbusters about why is the female character of colour the only one that isn't actually educated? She works on the trains. And I went, you know, that is something that I hadn't realised. And I suppose it kind of stems a little bit back from the original one where Ernie Hudson joins up and he's just kind of joining to to help out. And it is the other three who are the academics who form this society. But I kind of went, oh, I'm so disappointed in the new Ghostbusters when I realised that because otherwise I thought it was quite a good, funny film. And I thought they'd made an effort to make the women as equally obnoxious and as arrogant as the men were in the first one. And I thought it was really well done. But when someone pointed this out to me that the person the woman of colour was the only one without a university degree. I suddenly went, oh, so there is this major stereotype that we are now continuing. However, there are some really good um, stories and films out there with people of colour in it. My absolute all-time favourite horror movie is Attack the Block um, by Joe Cornish, and it has the most amazing John Boyega in it as Moses, and it's just mesmerising to watch. And I mean, it's got Jodie Whittaker in it as well, which is always brilliant because she's just so much fun to watch. Um, but it reminded me of the film Kidulthood by Noel Clark, which isn't a genre movie. But I know that Joe Cornish and Noel Clark both went to the units that they were representing. So Joe Cornish spoke to young people um, and Noel Clark spoke to young people of colour and sort of said to them, well, tell me how you speak, tell me what you do, tell me how you interact. And I think by doing that kind of research, they then made it that much more realistic, that much more fun and that much more different from all the other stuff that is out there. And I mean, John Boyega is the hero of Attack the Block and it ends with them all chanting his name, whereas at the beginning, they all just viewed him as a, a violent lowlife. And it's just wonderful to see such character development going all the way through this. And I, I love that film. Get Out is another film that has been highly recommended and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but it is top of my list when I do get some quiet horror time. Uh, I have to admit that I have recently been going for shorter stuff and I have discovered the most amazing um, Indian horror and it's called Anjan. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it's on Netflix and I watch it once a week because I have about an hour where I don't have a husband or a child and I can just watch an hour or something. I've been watching this and it is amazing to watch because it's like watching English horror, but with so many different twists to it. So the whole point of Anjan is it, it is rural myths is the subtitle of it. And it is all the rural myths that you get from India. And I look at them and there's there's so many similarities to English folklore and English ghost stories, and yet so many twists and different aspects to it as well. And one of the things I'm finding really interesting is it is very, very female-led. And I have to admit, apologies if you want to watch this this awesome series, um, I have to say none of them have had a happy ending yet. They're all very much a case of you think it's all fine and then the bogeyman jumps back out again. But they're they have women as the central roles and they have very different cultural issues to what they do here. It's very much a case of women who are in unhappy marriages or who are lined up to marry or who are being on the edge of poverty or who are struggling to fit into a new family. And it has just been so refreshing to watch and I can't wait to check out some more Indian horror. And I also randomly stumbled across the Korean 
series called Tale of Orang, which I I lost briefly because I, I watched it randomly one night and then had a big break from watching things and couldn't find it again. But I have rediscovered it and The Ghost Bride, which seems to be another fantastic one. And I'm just so excited that Netflix has put on a load of foreign horror and I can now expand what would be my normal viewing from something like Sabrina, which is great, but it's very colourful and glamorous and everyone's pretty and it's just, oh, it feels so very fake. And then to see these other cultures and these other stories, which are familiar and yet at the same time different. And I am so looking forward to watching all of these things and obviously seeing Get Out as well. On the uh, East Asian front, uh, where I basically live um, at the moment when it comes to uh, dramas, I um, after watching The Untamed, um, both the um, the animated version and the amazing uh, Netflix version, the live action, um, I also can recommend um, The Ghost Bride. I thought that was really good. That's um, Malaysian, Taiwanese-Malaysian um, production. Um, also, Guardian which I think I recommended to Meg once because it's just amazing. It's based on um, a novel by Priest uh, and it's really, yeah, I just totally love that. Um, that's a Chinese drama um, available on YouTube. Uh, so everyone can can watch that, check that out. Um, and the one I've been watching recently is Evernight, uh, which is another Chinese historical drama, which I am I'm kind of obsessed with this era, um, <laughs> this era in Chinese history because it's just amazing. Um, I love I love the the sets, the costumes, the, the acting, the ridiculously complicated plot lines. Oh my god, yeah. So, and I have a um, Charlotte was is right about Netflix. It's bringing a lot of of different um, dramas and and um, horrors and comedies kind of over to our screens. So um, they've got a really fantastic selection, particularly a, f- a fantastic selection of East Asian um, programs that uh, I, I've got like a stupidly long to-be-watch list as equally long or longer than my to-be-read list. Um, but yeah, it just seems to be, that's where it's happening at the moment. Like it's, you know, there's a lot of people talking about on Twitter. There's lots of discussion about, I think The Untamed was so popular. It's really opened up an entire like world that people kind of haven't really got into. And you just realise like, wow, how narrow my experience has been. Oh, Hidden Figures, another really great uh, film but of course, um, was directed by a white man, and the script was done by him and a, a white woman. Yeah, but but the book that it's based on was written by a black woman. There we go. So, so we can we can recommend Hidden Figures. If our discussion tonight shows anything, it's that we need more novellas, novels, and short stories from people of color. Crucial to that is not just the onus on us as readers to make a conscious choice to read such fiction but also to find a way to identify books that we want to read. That could be recommendations on Twitter, word of mouth, seeing authors at conventions, or listening to podcasts that offer recommendations. Did Megan mention Octavia Butler enough, by the way? If you haven't got the time or brain energy to read right now, hopefully we've convinced you that Netflix and other streaming services are offering up some excellent foreign horror, drama, and fantasy. These provide an amazing jumping-off point for anyone who wants to find more diverse stories writers and characters. We are all guilty of accepting and reinforcing racist attitudes every day of our lives. Many of us never intend to do so, but by not fighting back, we are as culpable as everyone else. Take this opportunity to reflect on your daily life, the biases you may hold, and the inequalities you accept as normal. It will be uncomfortable. You may not always like what you see, but we can't change if we don't acknowledge the part we all play. 
Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.